Spread the fire fam, welcome back to SMWX. If you're new around here, my name is Dr. Sizwe Mbofu-Walsh and on this channel, SMWX, the Sizwe Mbofu-Walsh experience, we explore South African politics through interviews and analysis. Great to have you on board if this is your first video. If you're returning, welcome back. The Sizwe Mbofu-Walsh Experience Podcast. Now, I've been doing a series of videos based around the launch of my second book, The New Apartheid. And I'm glad to say that since my last video, this book has gone to number one of the South African non-fiction charts, um, at least books uh, published by South African authors. Now, this is the number one non-fiction book in the country. Um, over the last two weeks. And that has been, uh, quite frankly, mind-blowing for me. So thank you very much for the support. If you've bought the book, shout out to you. If you want to buy the book, check the links in the description below. But really what I've been doing with these videos is looking at chapters of this book and breaking them down for you, just to add a new dimension to the book and to give you some context as you go about your reading or if you've already read it, just hearing uh, my reflections on those chapters. So in today's video, I'm going to be looking at the technology chapter. This book, The New Apartheid, essentially pursues the thesis that apartheid did not die, it was privatized. That since 1994, there have been more resemblances between the constitutional order and apartheid South Africa than we would care to admit. And the book looks at this in various spheres of South African life, space, wealth, law, technology, punishment. And today I want to explore the technology chapter. So I'm going to do that in two parts. The first part, I'm going to look at the argument I make about categorization and the way that digitizing our lives makes it easier to categorize us and how that reinforces patterns of apartheid. Then in the second part, I'm going to look at algorithmic bias and particularly how it plays out in a South African context. Hope you enjoy, looking forward to getting started, and let's head over to part one. The Caesar Mbofu Walsh Experience, SMWX. Right, well, in the new apartheid and in the technology chapter of this book, I tried to make the argument that the increasing digitization of our lives has important implications for the way that patterns of racial and other forms of oppression continue to persist in the South African context. And there are some implications for countries around the world too. But I zero in on the South African context because a lot has already been said about the way that technology and also big tech has influenced questions of racial justice, but also racial oppression. So I begin this chapter um, by just noting a, a confluence that we often don't acknowledge in South Africa. And that is that as South Africa was becoming a democracy in the early to mid 1990s, so the rise of personal computing was taking shape. 
And so democratic South African life has always run in parallel with the increasing digitization of life, with the rise of the internet, the rise of personal computing, and eventually the rise in mobile computing. And so I'm interested, and I think a great deal uh, more scholarly work and just intellectual work needs to go into thinking about how these two processes have unfolded side by side, but also interacted with one another. And so life after 1994 has been technological as much as it has been physical in many ways. And when we look at South Africa's democracy, we increasingly see that the technical, technological aspects of that democracy, the digital aspects of that democracy are becoming just as important. In other words, just as salient as some of the things happening on the ground. So we need to keep an eye on these technological developments. And, and so this is what this chapter tries to do. And it tries to show the new apartheid in the technological world in South Africa. And what I do in, in this chapter is, is firstly just meditate for a while on this question of categorization. Now, apartheid as a political philosophy is really a, a deep system of thought that we haven't even really begun to explore in, in the constitutional era. But one of its key aspects is this increasing categorization of the human. So apartheid really relies on an ability to code people place them into categories and then determine the quality of their lives and the extent of their freedoms depending on which particular category uh, in, depending on the particular category into which they fall and what in some ways marks apartheid out although it bears similarity with other systems is that these forms of social categorization are pseudo-biological so that people's physical appearances and their physical characteristics um, are often the basis for these forms of categorization. Now of course there have been other examples of, of similar processes throughout the world in, in terms of racial coding. We look at Europe, we look at uh, North America, we look at Latin America in, in many ways as well. We look at Australia and New Zealand. We see other examples in Southern Africa. But what was unique about South Africa's apartheid experiment, one that I'm afraid continues in many ways, is that this social categorization was taken to a new extreme. And one of the things that really fascinated, particularly uh, for Wood, an apartheid prime minister, Hendrik Verwoerd, um, and a key figure in the evolution of apartheid into one of its most rapacious forms, especially in the 1960s. A key idea and, and a key um, obsession of Verwoerd was population registration and linking categorization and population registration to biological characteristics. So the apartheid government and historian Keith Breckenridge in his excellent book, Biometric State, uh, explores this in depth, go and check that out, but looks at how there was this massive project to take people's fingerprints and, and link their, their, them in, in 
the archives of apartheid with these fingerprints, which were then a code for their racial, um, their racial characteristics. So you had to have this link between categorizing people, then being able to verify that that person is that person via one of their physical traits, and then taking that verified information and then linking it to a broader system of racial categorization on a terrifying scale. All of this is to say that in the digital era, technologies of categorization of biological, but also psychometric, in other words, uh, the way that your mind and the way that your predispositions can be mapped um, in terms of what you like on social media and that kind of thing. Um, your ability to be categorized far exceeds what the apartheid government was ever capable of achieving. And in the book, um, I joke and I say that the current forms of social categorization that happen on digital media today uh, via the markers that you send through your mobile phone, through your social media activities, through your browsing histories, through your uh, every, every moment that you're surveilled by a private security camera in South Africa, which is a lot. All of these digital markers present a portrait and a picture of you that is far in excess of what the apartheid government would ever have been able to marshal. Now, of course, that happens in a different setting where there isn't a state whose explicit goal is to categorize you and then segregate you. But increasingly, these forms of segregation, or at least these forms of categorization, are placed in the hands of corporations. Corporations who aren't even based in South Africa often. And so we have an interesting question in the constitutional era, especially in this particular moment, where we have an intense amount of social categorization. We have a very tenuous link between the accountability for what's done with that data about us and who ultimately you know, bears responsibility for, for, for what is done with that data. And so what I'm trying to do in this chapter then, and of course read the chapter for more depth, detail, the footnotes, uh, the real nuances in the argument is to show that despite the fact that apartheid has fallen, its technologies of categorization have taken on an afterlife in the digital era and have in many ways grown and evolved such that your own biological and, and psychological uh, categorizations are now much more elaborate than they were in apartheid and that should give us pause for concern particularly because of the way that that maps onto other forms of segregation uh, like the segregation of space which i speak in, about in the spatial chapter in south africa another interesting thing on that note is is just the way that apartheid um, and this was something that was quite fascinating to me looks like it's just a racial project um, so when we go back into the apartheid archives and we understand what the apartheid engineers were trying to do um, race is the key marker but when you look deeper you find that there's actually a lot more social engineering going on and one of the key areas of engineering is gender engineering so apartheid 
is really focused um, to a terrifying degree on the control of women, on the control of women's bodies, on the control of... It had an intense fascination with controlling intimate relationships between racial groups, and of course that had gendered dimensions. Uh, it was also intensely fascinated with sexual control and preventing um, sex between races, effectively. And so there was an implicit and explicit project of engineering both a kind of society in which people fit into certain racial boxes, but also very stringent gender boxes. And so um, just on this, I'd like to read a section from, from the book because uh, I think this explains in, in some detail um, just the extent of this project. So, you know, we often hear about these apartheid laws, um, but they actually kind of can be quite hard to find. And so what I do in the book is I give you an example of what an apartheid law actually read like. And this was, um, this was the Immorality Act. And so I want to read a section of the Immorality Act to see just how legislated these gender and racial identities um, became. So this act reads, and I'm reading section 16.1 of the Immorality Act of uh, 1927. It was actually passed in 1927 when the National Party had a brief stint in power before 1948, but it became central and, and was amended and upgraded throughout apartheid. But listen to this. Section 16.1a. Quote, any female person who, one, has or attempts to have unlawful carnal intercourse with a colored male person or commits or attempts to commit with a colored male person any immoral or indecent act or three entices solicits or importunes any colored male person to have unlawful carnal intercourse with her or four entices solicits or importunes any colored male person to the commission of any immoral indecent act and so this is the second section now so that section focuses on what on on white female women and and doing various uh, things which are considered illegal um, with effectively black men. Um, now we have what black men also are prohibit prohibited from doing. This is section B. Um, sorry, this, no, this now comes to black women. So we have section B, any colored female person who has or attempts to have unlawful carnal intercourse with a white male person. Two, commits or attempts to commit with a white male person any immoral or indecent act. Or three, entices, solicits or importunes any white male person to have unlawful carnal intercourse with her. Or four, entices, solicits or importunes any white male person to the commission of any immoral or indecent act shall be guilty of an offense. So both white women and black women were found guilty of offences, which by the way were punishable with, with serious, and, and in the footnotes I go into the actual criminal penalties, with serious offences, 
which governed their most intimate lives and were legislated. And when you think about this over a period of time, the effect that has on people's psyche, on the way people understand gender in a society and, and the way that these identities are just completely, um, completely constrained and oppressed um, through legislation is, is just fascinating. Um, and I just want to read a further section from the book, which, which explores this once again. Through these laws, apartheid wielded categorization as a weapon of racial and gender-based discrimination. Appreciating beauty across racial boundaries was shamed and repressed. Black people were considered an existential threat to white bloodlines. White women were seen as conveyor belts of whiteness whose chastity had to be policed by draconian laws. Black women were seen as potential polluters of whiteness, whose sexuality had to be isolated from white men. Women were also saddled with expectations of motherliness and domestic subservience. With such policies of sexual control, apartheid sought to reverse the growing population gap between white and black people. White women were encouraged into hyperfertility while black women were subjected to sexual shaming and even sterilization. See the footnote there. Jeffrey Cronier, one of apartheid's early ide ideological proponents, explained the connection between sexuality and racial purity at the base of apartheid's design. And I quote from Jeffrey Cronier, who's one of apartheid's intellectual ideologues. Uh, there are whites and Please, this is some crazy racist stuff, so prepare yourself. There are whites born in this country who have denigrated to such an extent in respect of morality, self-respect, and racial pride that they feel no objection against blood mixing. Whites must protect themselves against these conscienceless and criminal blood mixers by making all blood mixing punishable. The individual is responsible to his community, his community for all his activities. The nation community is entitled to call to the dock everyone who acts in conflict with its highest interest, for the interest of the nation always outweighs personal interest. Taking you into the mind of apartheid's twisted ideology but that's what we have to do if we want to understand how broken our society was and is and will be if we don't reckon with the intense racial but also gendered and various other uh, identity legacies of South Africa in apartheid but also the way they have metastasized in other ways evolved and grown into the new apartheid so Let's move on to part two, where we will be looking at the question of algorithmic bias. The Cizwe Mbofu Walsh Experience, SMWX. Okay, so in this part, I want to take you into some of the ideas of algorithmic bias that underpin this book's chapter on technology. Now, first we need to have a look at an algorithm. What is an algorithm? Well. Basically, you can think of an algorithm as a recipe for a computer to do something that a human initially wants it to do, 
but eventually that can replicate itself after the human has given the instruction. One useful way of thinking about an algorithm that I found is, is that algorithms are to human mental work what machines are to human physical work. So you know how machines in some ways replace or at least replicate some of the things that, that humans can do. So if I had like a bionic arm here to lift up my book for me and open it, that would replace um, the physical work that I would have to do in, in opening the book. An algorithm is sim similar, but for mental work. So there are just menial mental tasks that we have to do every day. Um, you know, I don't know, create something on your calendar that you need to continuously do. Well, the one way to do that is just to do it and repeat it every day with your mind. Or you could give a computer a recipe to say, every day at this time, I want to do this thing, put this on my calendar until the end of the year. And the computer will take your mental recipe and execute it. Now, this is all wonderful, um, but I'm afraid it gets a, a bit uh, dark in places because Firstly, we don't always know the direction in which these algorithms will go. And, and when you look at major companies, whether that's Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube even, they, they all run on a, on a key algorithm, um, which, which determines uh, much of our lives these days. So let's, let's give you an example. On YouTube, how did you find this video? Um, if you're watching for the first time, you may have seen it in your newsfeed. Well, how did it pop up there? It, it wasn't just an accident. YouTube thinks that you are the kind of person who wants to watch this. And I'm very glad that you found it. Uh, and I bet YouTube was right. Um, but that's quite a lot of power um, to determine what you see on a given day. Same with Twitter. Uh, when you see your timeline, it's not just a random collection of, of tweets. It's a series of tweets that Twitter has curated that they think will engage you the most, uh, maybe anger you the most, and whip you up into a, uh, an emotional state so that you engage and you join the, the Twitter battle of the day. And so these algorithms have important psychological effects on us in terms of mental health, in terms of also the information uh, ecosystem which can become contaminated by fake news or, or just uh, sensationalism because that's what, what people want to see um, and, and those overtake the more truthful, um, maybe less engaging uh, pieces of news that, that people see. So, of course, we, we already know the dangers of algorithms for, for just preserving truthfulness. But in a South African context, there are also questions of whether algorithms which are often created outside our borders uh, reinforce racial biases which then reinforce the racial um, legacies of apartheid that we have inherited as a country. And there are a few examples of this. So for example, if you type in squatter camps in South Africa into Google, um, what comes up, or at least what did come up for a long time, uh, you may test it now, is uh, white squatter camps in South Africa, or in other words, white people who live in squatter camps. And, you know, that's purely because that's a sensationalist story.
but it, it has no bearing on the truth of what squatter camps in South Africa look like. Um, there are various examples of this across, uh, across various important algorithms. And this is not to say that, you know, it's, it's all some big evil conspiracy. It's, it's that algorithms are inherently volatile things and, and uh, they can go in directions that are unexpected often. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is then show how these algorithms that are operating in the background of our digital lives reinforce patterns of oppression um, and social dislocation and uh, effectively apartheid um, as it still continues to live in South Africa today. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, um, a critical look at our technological world and lives, then make sure that you check out this chapter. Um, even if you, if, if you are in technology, if you're in big tech, um, I think this book is an interesting view and a window into the way that uh, algorithms created by major companies actually play out in a different context, not just the US context or the European context, but actually a new context, the South African context, one which hasn't been looked at in great depth. And I think this book is a first attempt really uh, to pass the consequences of these algorithms on a society like South Africa's. So that's it for this review of uh, what I do in this book. If you're interested in these arguments and more, this is just a, a little part of this book one of its chapters, there are many other chapters. Make sure you get hold of this book, The New Apartheid. Um, it is available in all good bookstores in South Africa. The audiobook is on the way. You can buy a signed copy in the link down below in South Africa. If you're outside South Africa, it's available on Kindle. Um, working on getting some copies available outside of South Africa. Let's see how that goes. And I look forward to your thoughts, your comments, Reach out to me, hashtag the new apartheid on social media. I'll retweet you. And thank you for coming around to SMWX once again. I'm glad the algorithm got you. Aye. The Caesar and Wolf Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye. Aye. Aye.